Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. is one I bet you don't think about a lot. It is one that you see and drive by, probably on the way here, probably today. They have an annual revenue of $39.5 billion. Uh, There's almost 50,000 out there in existence in our nation alone. They have a footprint, actual square miles, of 68 square miles in this country bigger than the country of Liechtenstein, which I'm sure you could totally point out on a map. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any guesses? No? Nothing? You guys can talk back to me. It's okay. There's not a wall here, I promise. The answer is storage units. Storage units. Someone that looked like got it right, but they were afraid to say it back there. Storage units. I'm sure some of you have a storage unit. It's one of the fastest growing industries in America. There is six square feet of storage space for every single person living in the United States available in this country. And it's a growing industry. Why? Because we just keep getting more and more and more stuff, right? We just keep accumulating more things. I remember an AT&T commercial a few years back that the tagline at the end was, let's face it, more is better. That's a foundational belief in America, probably one of the most bipartisan beliefs we have. At the end of this month, our country will celebrate one of its highest holy days, Black Friday, where we will trip over ourselves and fight over gaining more and more stuff, newest and latest gadgets, because a big chunk of our economy, we will come to find out, and we told quite a bit, is based upon us wanting more stuff. Now, I'm not standing here to shame you today, to to wallow in the shame of shopping. I like to go shopping. I don't mind going out and looking for things at all on Black Friday. And, you know, maybe you'll do that. I, I can name a couple of people in here that I'm related to that will be very active on Black Friday, but I won't name any names. Um, but I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the shopping part of it. I'm just saying what we want to define in that thought is, is, is a question, I think, for all of us, especially as Americans, is how do we define what is enough? How do we define and measure whether we are consuming things or whether things are consuming us. That's the question that we're confronted with today in the Lord's Prayer. And I love that Jesus just does this. We can't just pray flowery language that God likes and get on with our life, our safe, nice, flowery religious words. Jesus insists on asking difficult questions that pierce into the conditions of our souls. We begin with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then today's focus, give us today our daily bread. As you may know, this is speaking of a specific point. Uh, Jesus, as he's teaching people to pray this, is, is leading his audience's imagination to a very particular story in the Old Testament that frames this 
prayer out. It's a story in the book of Exodus. And what's happening here is that Israel, the people of God, they are under the cruel and merciless hand of Pharaoh. They are in Egypt as slaves. They've cried out to God for freedom for generations, for hundreds of years. And finally, finally, God sends Moses, one of their own, to confront Pharaoh with the power of God and to free them from the yoke of oppression. And what follows them in Exodus is this incredible story of liberation, a story that Jesus hearkens back to often, even in describing his own ministry. And after these hundreds and hundreds of years, finally there is freedom. And after freedom, when the the waters are literally parted and they're brought out of Egypt and the armies that are chasing them are disposed of, They find themselves in the desert. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert before, but in the desert, there's there's just not a lot of options. And so this crowd of people, as crowds of people are oft normally doing, they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. Exodus 16 says, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, and we ate all the food we wanted. But but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I mean, catch the irony here. This is the same group of people who just saw with their own eyes, just walked through with their own feet, God parting a sea to get them out. God leading them by a cloud and by fire through and out of oppression, and yet God's not capable of meals? There is an irony there. In the face of empire, God literally rescued them, literally brought them out, but they thought food was going to be a problem. Sometimes God brings us out of Egypt, as we've said often before, but sometimes it takes longer to get Egypt out of us, right? Sometimes it takes longer to get slavery out of us. So God responds to this. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are going, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in and that it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. This bread, as you probably have heard before, is a bread called manna. Literally, this means, what is it? Manna in Hebrew, now you know a Hebrew word, you can always remember, is what is it? If you're sitting down at a really bad meal, maybe you can just say, just call it manna. Call it manna from above, because you're like, what is it? I don't know. You have grown in your Hebrew today. Actually, it's, it's this strange kind of, you know, we, we think of when we hear bread from heaven that God's just dropping wonder bread loaves from the sky, but it's, it's something that's sort of strange here. And actually, scientists, some scientists think that they know what manna was. There's this dried tree sap that comes from the cocoons of beetles, stay with me, native to the desert, and they were full of substance called tree hillos. You can see a picture of this. It's actually a delicacy in some parts of the world, which was sweet, and it had all the complex sugars and protein that were needed for nourishment in the desert. And it would form on plants overnight, and because of the dry and hot climate in the desert, they they would wither away in the heat of the day. So every morning they could go and they could find this, which had everything nutritionally at least that they needed every single day. 
Now, it's from beetles and tree sap, but when you're in the desert, you do what you got to do. It's manna. What is it? So don't miss this, though. God commands them on that, that sixth day to gather enough for both days because they're going to rest that very next day. So, but the, the promise of this is, is get what you need, get what you need for today. The only time you gather more is for the Sabbath, but just get what you need for today. And what this was building in the Israelites, whether they liked it or not, or whether they realized it or not, is they were learning to live from a place of daily dependence and trust, something that sounds nice and awesome, but is very hard to learn. It's hard to learn for people in a desert. It's hard to learn as modern Americans to live from a practice and a posture of daily dependence and trust. These people had been formed for hundreds of years by slavery. Slavery is trauma. I've learned from my wife who's a dietitian and talking to friends who have walked through difficult situations with fostering and adopting that it's common for children who've experienced the trauma of food insecurity starvation, other symptoms of poverty, to hoard food or to have a disordered relationship with the food they eat. Their minds are stuck on survival mode. So they gather what they can. Their bodies are doing what their minds have been shaped to do. It's often we look at the story and judge the grumbling Israelites, but in reality, this was a trauma response to where they had been before, and suddenly they're realizing they're stepping into a learned experience of a God who will provide for them daily and not just sometimes. The word that is shaped in this mindset is a word we would call scarcity. Scarcity is not something that's confined to people who walk through trauma. Scarcity is rooted in the belief that God's goodness has, has limits. And ultimately, there's, there's not enough to go around. So as enslaved people, the Israelites, they knew this reality firsthand because their value was not in who they were, not in their identity intrinsic as image bearers of God. Their identity was in how much they could produce. As a slave of empire, you are what you produce. You are the bricks that you make. And the same is often true today in the United States in that we are formed in this slavery of scarcity. You are what you produce. You are what your job can do for you. You are how much you have. And so you gather and you hoard what you can from this mindset, this slavery of scarcity. So much of this happiness that is out there that we, all we had to gather up. There's only so much of the resource around. And if we want to survive, us having what we need means that somebody else does not. That's the mindset of scarcity. If God's going to bless me, it must mean that somebody else is not going to get blessed because there's not enough to go around. We have to hoard away life because God is only good to a limit. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the American religious life is formed in this spiritually a survival mode driven by fear. It is a lie. But it is a lie that is very, very easy to believe. That God only has so much for us to go around. Think about how often you live on what God did 
back then in your life, that high point, you're still trying to live on yesterday's bread instead of what God can do today. Because there's only so much to go around. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite writers, he says that we who are now the richest nation are today's main coveters. We never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more, and this insatiable desire destroys us. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy and mean and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that ambiguity. With that being said, we can understand as followers of Jesus that this is, in coming to Jesus and learning to pray these words, it is nothing less than the rewiring of our spiritual imaginations. It's nothing less than the renewal of our minds, to use the language of Paul, the transformation of our hearts by and for abundance, to learn to live out of scarcity and into this place of the abundance of God, which brings us back to our prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Like the Israelites, God, he's in the process then of reforming our imaginations for abundance, reshaping the spiritual landscape that we have been brought up within so that we can learn this posture and this practice of dependence and trust. Because it's, let's be honest, the language of this daily bread does not sound like abundance. Abundance sounds like more and more and more. Abundance sounds like, from an American perspective, a continuous stream of more and more things. But abundance, according to Jesus, is something far different. Because if we think I just have just enough bread for today, that's a finite amount, right? There's a very clear limit on what is afforded to me. Abundance would be, by most of our imaginations, bread for today and also tomorrow and in the next few days and, and beyond that. And I have enough for the days ahead because I can stop worrying finally whether there is going to be enough. But abundance, according to God, must be more than this. Must be taking us to a deeper place of work within us. It's changing the question we're asking in this. Stay with me here. From how much do I need? How much do we need to who's with us? Because if the maker of heaven and earth is with us, there's always enough. If God, the God who is the God of our fathers and our mothers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, if he is with us, there is always enough. If the God who parted the seas in our stories is with us, there will always be enough. And because of this abundance, because it's not a constant pursuit of more and more, because we understand that the God who has and holds all things together is with us, I can know that there is always enough. Abundance is found, my friends. It's found in knowing that God's provision actually flows out of his presence. God provides for us, not because he's somewhere far away and drops these things. God gives his provision because he's present with us in the desert itself. Do you hear that? 
Abundance is not the summation of our gifts, but the nearness of the giver. Meaning we're praying, give us this day our daily bread. We're acknowledging this paradigm shift within us that we don't count the same way anymore. We count the abundance of God that is with us. And because God is with us, we have everything we need. We remember that we have been rescued out of this slavery of scarcity, that we have a great liberator of our minds and our hearts, that our provider is both in the desert with us and also on the mountaintop. He is still with us. And so we're learning to pray this day by day, being formed by these words that we proclaim because provision is a person. Provision that we need is, is a person who is with us. That's good news, is it not? Can y'all say that? Listen, I set up the chairs so there's more room to run back and forth today, okay? We're ready. Provision is a person who is with us, not a number that we reach. That is good news. And it should be good news as we see in these words to our neighbors too. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. There are no individualistic terms in the Lord's Prayer. It is always our and us. Because if I'm living from a place of abundance, if I know that the God who is with me is the giver of life, that there's always enough to go around, if I'm being formed in abundance, I can be generous because I don't have to fear that my generosity takes away from the provision of God. I know that because he is with me, me offering what he has given, me giving of what he's already given me is only opening the door for more of the abundance of the God who is with me right now. By every earthly standard, when it looks like there's not enough, we can learn that the best gift we have is already here in the presence of God. And so that opens the door for his provision as we learn to be generous from a mindset of abundance with our neighbors. We see this in Matthew 18 as Jesus is performing one of his most famous miracles. He's teaching in the wilderness. He's surrounded by uh, 5,000, it says, but that's 5,000 men, and the scriptures are counting the men. That's not counting the women and the children who are walking with them. So this is thousands and thousands of people in the wilderness following Jesus around, listening to him teach. And at the end of the day, the disciples, they begin to see the need that is before them, and that's good. It says, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and, and buy themselves some food. See, the disciples have an awareness and a compassion for what they see in front of them. That is good. And yet Jesus' response to them here is, is kind of jolting. He says, Jesus replied, they, they, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, that's, I would side-eye Jesus all day where with that thing. It's like, I'm not you, homie. Like, you give them something to eat? That's a pretty strong standard there. Because I, we, the disciples, we can't, we can't do what you do. We can send them. But this is compassionate. We see a need. Let's meet a need by helping them address that need. Jesus says, you, you do it. You feed them. Now, clearly, Jesus isn't clueless here to 
by every earthly standard, the need that's right in front of them, by every earthly standard, there is not enough. But he's calling the disciples to have an imagination, a spiritual imagination that's shaped by abundance. It continues. It says, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. They answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Notice what happens here. Jesus says, bring it to me. Hear those words today. Bring it to me. Bring your limitations to me. Bring your not enough to me. Watch what I can do with it. He then takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. He hands it to the disciples to give to the people. You know what the disciples had at that point when they, once he blessed it and broke it and gave it back to them? The same amount they did before. But in following the instructions and the abundance of God and giving away the limitations of what they offered to Jesus, a miracle took place. And the question for the disciples in that moment, in that moment where they turned around and faced the crowd, is the same question we you and I face today as we pray these words together, is what are we going to do with the abundance of God? What are we going to do with the limitations? You see, this is really, really easy in our lives to look and to think about all of the limitations that we see around us. Like, as a church, like, we don't have our own facility. Sometimes we meet in a lobby for the children's ministry. Sometimes things are hard. We have, I don't know how many meetings I've been in where we talk about and strategize how we can best market or cut up five loaves and two fishes. A lot of Christian ministry is remarketing five loaves and two fishes. A lot of church activity is figuring out how to cut up little bitty loaves and pieces for, for this to offer people because we take the limitations and leave it away from Jesus and expect ourselves and our own power to do it. Instead of having an abundance mentality, we live from scarcity as a church, as people, and we don't allow and bring those limitations to God to see the miracles that can take place when we offer him what we have even in those limitations. I don't want to have my eyes more on the limitations of our church than I do on what God can do with those limitations. Do you hear me? Sometimes in cynicism and doubt, it is easier to complain about the five loaves and the two fishes than to look at the Jesus who was here waiting for him. And I don't want to be that way anymore. I'm tired of living. I want to expect that with what we have, as limited as it can be sometimes, that God in his hands can bring abundance, can do miracles. Maybe you see limitations in other ways in your life. Maybe the limitations of your marriage. Maybe the limitations of your job. 
maybe the limitations of relationships that are hurting and broken, and all you have focused on is what is not, instead of in the hands of Jesus, what can be? And so as we close today, I want to ask that question again. What are we, what are you going to do with the abundance of God? Are you going to hoard it? Hold back? Complain? Focus on what is not? Or will you bring it to Jesus? Will you offer it up to him and say, Take this, break it, bless it. And as he gives it back to you to in faith live from that abundance and watch what he can do. I don't want to hoard in scarcity and cynicism anymore. I want to be a part of a church, a community that sees limitations not as limitations but as opportunities for abundance to take place in ways that we never thought they could. So Jesus, I have no magic words to pray. I have no human strategy to do what only you can do. But God, with open hands, we offer you Restoration Church. With open hands, we offer you our marriages. With open hands, we offer you our financial situation. With open hands, we offer you our children. With open hands, we offer you our jobs or our joblessness. With open hands, we offer you whatever limitation holds to us in these moments. And we ask God, bring your abundance. Not abundance by this by the measurements of the world, not abundance by the measurements of the American way of life, but abundance in the kingdom of God where there's always enough to go around. Reform our imaginations for the kingdom you're calling us into. Lord Jesus, we trust what you're going to do. It is no coincidence that every week when we gather to remember the sacrifice of Christ, we do it remembering it with the cup, juice representing Jesus' blood shed for our sins, and the bread, the daily bread, the bread of his goodness, the bread of his sacrifice for us. We have some communion elements on the table. There's some up here as well. Just encourage you in this time, whatever the Lord is stirring in you to receive that. If you want to follow Jesus, maybe for the first time today, I'd love to help you take those steps. I'm going to be in the back if I can pray with you about anything. And as we worship together, just encourage you to celebrate this moment, communion, and listen to what the Lord is speaking to us today.